My name is Mark Corona, and welcome to the Untold Health Podcast. This is Season 4, all about meta-science. Let's hear this week's Untold Health story. One of the most common forms of evaluation in science occurs when researchers send their manuscripts, or articles, to various scientific journals. But in order to better understand how social factors affect scientific evaluation, in this week's episode, I spoke to an expert in the intersection of social science and scientific progress. So I'm Misha Teplitsky. I'm an assistant professor at the School of Information at the University of Michigan. I came to this uh, kind of field and this position... um, Somewhat indirectly, I started off as a as a physics major and thought I was going to go into sort of art science, and then kind of had a sort of change of heart and pivoted to social science. And I've did a PhD in sociology, and a a postdoc in management, and now I'm in information school. So I've been kind of across fields, um, but kind of consistently interested in in science from a sort of social perspective. as far as research, I am um, uh, focusing primarily on kind of two themes. I would say one is where uh, ideas, where new ideas come from, and in particular, the role that communication plays. Um, the I think the intuition there is that, you know, science is a social process. We all depend on each other's sort of discoveries and ideas to create our own. And so how we learn about those others' ideas is very crucial. Right, so a lot of my work focuses on these kinds of uh, communication processes. Um, so where ideas come from, and, all, and the second big theme is how they're evaluated. So the way we sort of certify ideas as sort of valuable or not, true or false, is also very much a social process that's done by organizations in specific ways. And so I'm studying um, sort of how the way we organize that evaluation process affects, you know, what gets um, called a, you know, a fact or what gets what becomes invisible. On a practical level, as I mentioned previously, once you've completed your research, you write a manuscript typically organized into an introduction, methods, results, and conclusion section. Each journal has its own particularities with regard to the structure of the manuscript, but they broadly follow a similar structure and flow. Once you submit an article, one or several editors will read the manuscript and decide whether it might be a potential fit to the journal. For very prestigious journals, they typically have a very high threshold for when something is worth publishing, with novelty, large effect sizes, and surprising results increasing the likelihood that they'll consider publishing the article. Assuming a manuscript piques the interest of the editor, they then send out the manuscript to various experts in the field to get feedback on the manuscript, a process known as peer review. So peer review is um, a a method of evaluation uh, in which, uh, you know, ideally uh, experts like peers of the producer, other experts in the field assess whether the idea is, you know, either worth pursuing and if it's a kind of funding competition, let's say, or worth publishing uh, if it's, let's say, a manuscript. Um, It's a... the method of evaluation then has had a kind of interesting history. Arguably, it's a relatively recent uh, kind of uh, evaluation, me- or at least it's, um, it's, an idea, it's an idea. It's very old, but in terms of kind of widespread use, 
It's, um, you know, only in the last several decades that it's become kind of the way we evaluate science. I think uh, the things we expect this method of evaluation to, um, the, its functions, I think, are several and somewhat debated. You know, a major function we expect uh, peer review to serve is a kind of curation function of identifying not so much what's true or false, but what's kind of most good in, according to some measure, right? Like what's worth paying attention to and what's less worth paying attention to. So it's kind of curation function. Quality control is something we expect from peer review too, ideally, although there's, I think, debate about how much uh, it actually serves that function. Uh, additionally, there's kind of, um, it's also a way in which we provide feedback to producers of ideas. So there's kind of constructive function we hope it serves. Those are, I think, the main things we expect peer review to do. There's also some, um, one of the things I've become interested in is sort of the learning function for the reviewer that it serves. Um, so I think that we learn a lot by reviewing, although that's not usually talked about or kind of quantified. So that's sort of a, you know, and, and generally speaking, it's viewed as like a badge of kind of a certification of sorts. Uh, so peer reviewed kind of findings are usually distinguished in a kind of binary way from non-peer reviewed findings in a very sort of a heuristic way. But I think how much that, that binary distinction really matters is kind of debated. Now, in theory, this seems like a great idea. We want to get a diverse set of opinions on a piece of work in order to improve it, but also to evaluate whether it might fit into a journalist's profile. But for the sake of balance, what are the benefits and pitfalls of peer reviewing in general? A yeah, good question. I mean, this is, I think, there are a variety of opinions on this. So I think um, there is pretty good evidence for its constructive function that it does help to make things better. Somewhat debated, but I, I think it's a you know reasonable kind of uh, prior to have. Um, I think the curation function is poorly quantified. Like, I, I don't think we, it's arguably the, the most important part that peer review does for us. It saves us, it points us to the most worthwhile, you know, highest kind of payoff things to read and pay attention to. But no one, I don't think we actually have any real quantification on sort of what the benefit and the cost of that is. Um, although that's what I think we suspect. Um, and I think some very real costs are both in terms of the time and, you know, kind of labor that it takes. Um, I'm waiting, uh, you know, for to get reviews on papers for months and uh, it's frustrating and it's kind of, but at the same time, understandable, it takes a ton of time. It's usually poorly kind of incentivized um, and it sort of slows down kind of uh, diffusion, um, arguably. So I think the costs are huge and the benefits are kind of poorly quantified, but perhaps also huge. The question is, though, are there any true alternatives to this? I think people uh, discuss, I think it's, we can imagine a number of alternatives. Um, so, you know, one commonly discussed one is, uh, you know, post-publication peer review, right? So we just kind of post our findings publicly somewhere and then, they get reviewed only after that step, you know, with kind of AI, lots of people are thinking about, can AI help us do this more kind of, you know, cheaper, quicker and so on. Um, 
I think it's it's really hard to say, and there are some there's some experimentation in the space, like the journal eLife is kind of experimenting with a, with a kind of decoupling curation from publication, and um, uh, but I think the need to I think the curation function of peer review is huge, and if we abandon this kind of formal peer review system, I th I suspect whatever comes next would also there would be a huge demand for curation. And I think it's easy to imagine that that would, um, a similar sort of entity organization or, you know, whatever, whoever serves that curation function would, you know, uh, the demand is so high that that would still come into play. And so maybe we would end up more or less where we started. Um, so at least to me, it's not clear, um, you know, maybe we can uh, kind of, limit bias better, maybe we can speed things up, but in general, the need to curate from tons of literature feels like an unavoidable need. Now, peer review assumes a baseline level of objectivity. Ideally, when we ask peer reviewers to look through a manuscript, we assume that they're being fair when doing so. We would ideally want them to evaluate the article based on its merit, not based on other subjective factors such as the geography of where authors come from, which university they're based at, or even the quality of their writing. But this objective approach to science is far from consistent, one might imagine, since we all know how difficult it is to be truly objective when evaluating the work of others. To better understand this dynamic, I asked Misha to tell me a bit about how social signals and dynamics influence our interpretation of scientific value. Good question, and I think um, this was, when I entered the space, it was a bit surprising and counterintuitive at first, and now that I've been working in it longer, sort of now it feels very natural. But um, you know, when a reviewer sort of assesses a let's say grant proposal manuscript as kind of worthy or not, from kind of a distance, it feels like a objective, clear, you know, decision, right? Uh, however, as a, you know, when I'm reviewing, um, it's very clear just how kind of uncertain of a decision this is. Like, what does it really mean to say this manuscript is above the bar or not? I've always found that a very sort of a poorly guided decision. Like, whose standards am I using? My own, you know, where do mine come from? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think in practice, what we find is that reviewers uh, struggle to make these decisions, which feel, you know, partially, if not subjective, then at least very uncertain. And, um, you know, in the end, they end up relying on various heuristics to kind of feel more confident in the decision. And that often comes down to, you know, sort of other information you see about the authors, let's say their status, affiliation. Um, and so we now have kind of decades of research showing that people use these heuristics and that that tends to benefit kind of high, you know, famous people people from high kind of prestige institutions. Um, so the reviewers kind of use that as a signal quality, perhaps. More formally, how do we kind of define this status bias? And how much evidence do we have to suggest that it's a real phenomenon? Going back to this idea that these decisions are very uncertain and to some extent subjective, um, and that people rely on heuristic, one common heuristic to rely on is the person's kind of existing status in the field. You know. Some people are famous, some are obscure, some are from prestige institutions, some aren't. Um, so one of the kind of, this has been studied for decades and kind of sometimes goes by the name of the Matthew effect. The idea that if you, um, 
of status, it changes the perceptions of your quality. And um, there've been kind of decades of uh, experiments on this topic in a variety of industries, but in science, including in science, um, for example, showing people, um, like having people judge the quality of manuscripts by with showing them who the authors are and not sh and hiding that information, right? So anonymization. How much, and the reliable kind of finding from this literature is that when a person is famous, they, their quality is perceived to be better. The effect size of that is, I think, hard to kind of give a simple number for because each case has its own sort of, you know, particularities. Um, my sense is it's on the order of, you know, five to 10% uh, kind of change in acceptance rates, you know, loosely speaking. So it's the kind of thing that doesn't, um, you know, first order kind of effect or factor in determining acceptance rates. I still, you know, can probably say is quality, but this is maybe, you know, changes, let's say 10% of that first order effect. We've established that there seems to be a baseline level of bias that occurs when reviewers are reviewing manuscripts, with reviewers relying heavily on these various heuristics. Do we know how much of this is down to conscious versus unconscious bias? And is there any strategy to this? So, so I think there's two parts, or the two parts come to mind. Um, so one, I, I suspect much of these kinds of um, effects are unconscious. Um, you know, for example, looking somebody up, uh, there's kind of surveys on how often this happens and surveys on how well people can guess on the identity of who you're reviewing. Oftentimes, you don't, I mean, actually, most often you don't need to look anything up. You just get, you know, most reviews, you know, you know who the person is or the people are. Um, so I suspect much of this kind of bias is of an unconscious nature. I think there are settings with a more, with kind of more conscious biases where you, um, you know, for example, if, if the editor knows who you are, the, the strategy of, I, I feel like there's a bit, a small role for strategy. Um, but one, I think interesting example is PNAS has something like a 98% acceptance rate for submissions that are from NA, like National Academy of Sciences members who can choose their own reviewers. And looking into that a bit, like I was shocked, like how can you get a 98% acceptance rate, even if you can choose your own reviewer? And so one of the things that I kind of realized is that the reviewer, like when you're chosen as a reviewer and the person choosing you is the author, it's pretty awkward to then send them back a scathing review, <laughs> right? So it's, there's kind of the strategic aspects to it that kind of consciously um, affect the ratings that people give. Um, you know, there's also, I think, concerns about kind of competition. Oftentimes when you're reviewing, probably it's something in your area and you can kind of relatively clear, see how it affects your own work, ambitions, et cetera, right? Like if I accept this paper, that means that the first move in that space has already been done and maybe I'm working on it and that's an uncomfortable thing to do, or like the implications are clear for my own work, right? So we kind of rely a lot on, like there's sometimes where the consciously the payoffs are visible and they're negative for you. And we're kind of relying on people to do what's best for science, right? And still give an unbiased kind of uh, recommendation on that paper, let's say. So I think there's like these various ways in which strategy and conscious bias can come into play, but they're all kind of poorly quantified, let's say. I think another, you know, now that 
we're talking about this. Another place where I think strategy and kind of social factors come into play is that, you know, if we're in a world where these decisions are, you know, very uncertain and at least, you know, at least in the short term, somewhat subjective, then we're in a world where, you know, people's opinions vary and are highly consequential for your career, let's say. And so it really becomes important, not only, you know, that the work is peer reviewed, but who is chosen as a reviewer, right? So kind of who, who reviews might be even more important than, you know, anything else. And so that kind of creates a lot of um, sort of hidden degrees of, I don't know, freedom, let's say, um, in what the ultimate decisions are. And so the editor's decision of, uh, let's say, editors, or maybe it's a funding agency, who to pick as a reviewer can often kind of predetermine the outcome. And also, you know, sometimes uh, these organizations will give you a chance to nominate your reviewers when you're submitting a paper, let's say. So you can say, oh, these are people in my field. They should, you know. And so like your, your ability to kind of predict who will like your work and nominate that person. And then let's say the editor actually invite them to review all become potentially very important. Um, how much all of this matters is again, I think anecdotally understood to be pretty important very poorly quantified um, a project I have is looking at this reviewer, like suggesting reviewers and how much of a role that plays. There's a ton of work showing that people who are recommended as reviewers end up being way more positive than people who are chosen kind of more externally, objectively perhaps. And kind of one interesting uh, thing, uh, my student of mine, um, James uh, is looking at is whether people's abilities to predict who will like their work kind of vary and whether editors kind of invite reviewers that you suggest at different rates. And one sort of early finding we're seeing is that looking at working with a publishing company, we're looking at submitting authors from all over the world and whom they recommend us, uh, whom they suggest as reviewers and who editors actually invite. And we're finding something like two or threefold difference in whom editors invite when looking at suggested reviewers from kind of Western and non-Western countries. So editors tend to invite, like actually invite the suggested reviewers when the authors are from a Western country, like two to three times more often, which is kind of uh, concerning, you know, and interesting, right? So if, if, Suggested reviewers are much more positive, and it's so important to get them to be your actual reviewers. And editors are inviting them more often. That could be kind of a, a way in which kind of uh, sort of bias enters the process. One of the most obvious solutions is to try to anonymize the peer review process, meaning that reviewers aren't able to see anything about the authors. But there are major field-specific differences in adoption rates for anonymization, with areas such as machine learning and AI way ahead when compared to the biomedical space. Misha actually recently published a study looking at how anonymization during peer review influences evaluations, and so I wanted to hear his thoughts about the basic premise of the study and what they found. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's very interesting that we, we have those decades of research. Um, we generally find that anonymized reviews, uh, you know, remove that extra kind of status benefit that famous people get. So it seems to be a fairer, fairer way to do uh, reviews. Um, and yet it's actually the minority of cases, organizations that actually use this uh, sort of format. 
I per I'm personally curious why there's such big disciplinary differences in this. I because uh, they're huge, right? So in the social sciences, pretty much everything is anonymized. You know, you uh, you mentioned machine learning. Uh, in the bio space, that seems to not be the case. Uh, hard science, uh, sort of hard sciences, also seems to not be the case. Um, so um, one question is is why, um, and one answer is that implementing anonymization is actually not so simple. So let's say you're in a, a publishing company that wants to that is reading this literature and decides, okay, well. We want to increase fairness. This seems to be a method, so let's implement it. Um, so one problem that arises is, you know, how do you ensure that the submissions you get are indeed anonymized, right? Because it's there are degrees of kind of signaling your uh, an author's identity, right? So yeah, you can maybe remove your name from the very top of the paper, but oftentimes throughout the manuscript, you might have other signals that it's your lab, you know, where this study comes from. And so there's this kind of uh, question of how much does the organization want to kind of police that people are actually anonymizing, right? And that turns out to be very non-trivial and um, expensive in terms of people's time. Perhaps this is actually where AI can maybe help a lot, but at the moment, um, one organization we work, one publishing company we worked with, um, Institute of Physics Publishing, found that it's very expensive for them, it takes tons of editors time to do this kind of compliance monitoring. And, you know, if somebody forgets to remove their name from the paper, you have to send them back to them and you kind of do these iterations, it takes a ton of time. And so one kind of attractive alternative then is, well, what if we just maybe offer this option to people like, hey, you can anon anonymize your paper if you want, and perhaps you will kind of, if you're concerned that there's going to be discrimination against you, maybe that, that'll kind of help mitigate that. So it seems like a cheap and appealing kind of alternative uh, format, but at the same time, uh, it's not really not clear that it can work. Uh, so first for two reasons. One is uh, maybe it's extra work for the authors and they won't kind of just, there will be no uptake. And secondly, you know, if you are a prestigious author, you are probably not unaware that your prestige helps you in every day in thousands of ways. And so why would you kind of volunteer to kind of, uh, you know, uh, to get rid of that benefit? And if you're sort of concerned that you, you would be discriminated against, maybe you anonymize. But at that point, the, you know, decision to anonymize becomes like a signal of kind of who you are. And maybe that sort of reduces any benefit that was to be gained in the first place. And so we uh, uh, studied uh, in detail whether this policy can actually work by working with Institute of Physics Publishing, uh, who instituted a policy change across a year. And uh, over that year, they um, led more and more of their journal portfolio, kind of gave authors this option of anonymizing. Um, and so what we found is that something like 20% of authors end up taking advantage of this uh, option. So the uptake is like far from universal, but certainly not zero. The decision of who chose this option, I think is really interesting. So we find some kind of maybe predictable, but also some not so predictable uh, patterns. Uh, we find that prestigious people, um, in our, which in our case, we measured by uh, how many citations uh, you know, the main author has, uh, 
So sort of maybe not shocking, we find that prestigious people, prestigious people use this option less, say they want to keep showing their identity. Kind of, um, kind of newer authors, non-prestigious authors uh, use this more. However, what was really kind of striking were the country differences. So Institute of Physics Publishing has, you know, tons of submissions from all over the world. And, you know, maybe kind of naively one would expect that, you know, maybe authors from kind of prestigious Western institutions are the ones who choose not to anonymize. And maybe authors from the other institutions anonymize. Uh, and in, in practice, we found something quite different in that authors from kind of like, uh, you know, wealthy kind of uh, European, Northern European countries, let's say Germany, anonymize the most. And authors from a lot of uh, sort of global south, et cetera, countries anonymize the least. Uh, so like in India, for example. I think how people take advantage of this option actually ends up being pretty kind of unexpected, but also makes the signal that anonymization, like who chose to anonymize is no longer a good predictor of anything. Uh, and so in the end, the policy actually seemed to work. Um, so in the end, we find that when IOP in the journals that it made this policy available to, the rates of acceptance of obscure kind of low prestige authors increased by about 5%. And the rates of acceptance for famous people went down a little bit. So that's, I, I, I think, how we deal with prestige bias um, is kind of important. There seem to be lots of space to explore different formats. So, you know, one is to kind of force everybody to anonymize. One is to give people the option like we studied. But we kind of need a lot more experimentation studies of this. You know, it's, it's an important problem. We should have a menu of solutions. But evaluations don't always occur on the individual level, such as during larger evaluation meetings where a group of people evaluate projects together. Misha has previously published another study about how evaluators change their scores when they see the scores of others. I wanted to ask him what the study was about and how much evaluators respond to the scores of others. Yeah, um, so I, you know, where that project was trying to, uh, where the project... Uh, went is looking at sort of social dynamics in a committee, right? So lots of decisions we've been talking about in this conversation are, you know, solo reviewers making decisions at their desk or whatever. But in, in practice, many decisions get made in groups and committees. And we have, you know, a hundred years of literature on various kind of patterns and group uh, kind of pa group processes and how those may arrive at all sorts of conclusions depending on various kind of factors. And um, so we sort of drawing on that literature, we wanted to see how this plays out in science uh, in, in the scientific space. And so we conducted um, two experiments um, in a grand competition at um, Harvard Medical School where we changed whether reviewers were able to see other reviewers scores to kind of get at this group, you know, pattern where you like see what other people give something and you're just your own kind of thinking on it, on it perhaps. Um, and yeah, long story short, what we found is a kind of negativity bias where seeing other people's negative scores had a much bigger effect on your opinion of the proposal than seeing their positive scores. And um, the implications of that are pretty serious, right? So if something has um, a lot of merits, 
maybe that doesn't get weighted nearly as much as demerits. So, and there's this kind of race to the bottom to some extent, like who, you know, so the implications are pretty serious. And I think the mechanisms are also pretty unclear and deserve a lot more attention. So is it, you know, I think one concern or suspicion is that this has to do with social presentation. So you don't want to come off as the person with low standards in a setting where you got other academics, there's egos in the room. You don't want to be the loose standards person, right? The person who finds like the fatal flaw, you know, in the back of the room is always sort of seen to be the, the smartest or whatever. So there's this kind of like, is this a social kind of psychological kind of, you know, social presentation issue? Or is this really just sort of uh, kind of rational decision making that, um, let's say, demerits are harder to find. So if someone finds them, you know, it means it's a use, more useful signal than finding merits, you know, it, the right kind of model is not, not entirely clear yet. Um, but I think in general, the sort of like social dynamics of committees probably have a huge role and we know very little about them in science. Now, one of the other big issues that plagues modern science is the trade-off between novelty and conservatism. We'll likely take a closer look at this in a later episode, but there are certainly social factors that play a role in incentivizing novelty versus conservativeness. More specifically, it could potentially be advantageous for researchers to conduct more conservative research because there are inherent risks associated with trying out new ideas, despite the fact that this likely results in more novel work. Well, why so? Well, before one conducts a study or runs experiments, researchers have a certain set of choices, they can conduct experiments with more predictable outcomes, which means that they're guaranteed to get a usable result and can therefore publish an article. This is particularly enticing for researchers since they require funding for their work, since when funders distribute funds, they'll look at the CV and previous publications of researchers. The problem is that pursuing conservative research might become very attractive relative to pursuing more uncertain research, since the value of actually publishing research and bolstering one's CV is more valuable than pursuing novel findings but failing to publish anything. Now this trade-off is most pertinent prior to conducting experiments, but assuming one does actually pursue more novel research, despite the strategic temptation to conduct more conservative research, does one actually get rewarded by scientific journals? Are scientific journals good at rewarding the risk-takers of science? Misha recently published a study in the journal PNAS that investigates exactly this question, so I wanted to hear what the motivation was for writing it, how they approached the question, and what their major findings were. So the motivation was this um, question about kind of incentives for exploration. Um, the, you know, you've alluded to this big debate in, in science and those who, those of us who study science is this kind of long-standing debate, but kind of accumulating kind of picture that there's a conservatism kind of that conservatism pervades the entire system and so the motivation was that well and, and then let me say what, what, there's this kind of emerging picture but when you look at any study in particular very closely you kind of there's always so many caveats so on the one hand it's like we already know this but on the other hand you kind of squint and you're like oh, all right but i don't do i really is this really compelling? Okay, maybe together it is to some extent. I don't know. So uh, the motivation was, well, let's just do a simple kind of direct 
test. Uh, so let's look at a uh, data from, in our case, it was two publishing companies. Let's try to measure novelty of a manuscript in the traditional way that it's done in literature, it has its caveats too, and see if those papers get more, more or less accepted, right? And uh, long story short, we found sort of the opposite of what the literature tends to say. We find that um, more novel papers are much more likely to get accepted. Um, so for example, the biggest kind of difference was in the journal Cell, you know, one of sort of big kind of uh, outlets in, um, in the life sciences. And, um, you know, we found that, that papers that are in the top sort of fifth, you know, quintile of novelty, have something like a 20% higher acceptance rate at cell, you know, where the baseline is, you know, maybe 10%, right? So it's something like, arguably, it has to be very, very novel to really get in there. Let's take a step back for a second. So there are signs that more novel papers are rewarded by higher acceptance rates. But how did the research team define novelty in your study? So we define novelty by looking uh, at unusual combinations of ideas in the paper. So our sort of intuition and the literature we're drawing on is that generally the innovation process in general is about recombining things that already exist in kind of unusual combinations. Um, and so in our, to kind of operationalize this idea, we looked at the references in a manuscript um, and looked for cases where the manuscript uh, references together uh, journals that have never or very rarely referenced together. So, you know, genetics and, I don't know, machine learning or something, right? And that can change over time too. Like at some point that was very rare, maybe today it's not, right? So it's kind of novelty according to this measure is an evolving kind of metric. Um, I think in general, you know, caveats, some, a lot of caveats are in order. This is like one operationalization of this intuition. Um, in general, in this, it's a very kind of slippery concept novelty and, Undoubtedly, we need better, more validated metrics in the space. So um, I think that, that you know that that's worth saying. Um, so yeah, so we measure in this way, and I think what was really sort of interesting about this is um, we've had this kind of literature where all the pieces were always somewhat problematic, but together painted this picture. And part of that picture was um, that you know there's cognitive biases that plays a huge role. Right, that there's conservatism in the system because reviewers are biased because they either can't have trouble making sense of very new ideas, so a kind of cognitive story, or there's a bias from a kind of strategic perspective, which is the I guess Goliath uh, effect you alluded to that you know uh, new ideas will sort of um, uh, you know diminish their own kind of incumbent ideas. Um, and so the, there's been this picture forming that, and then if we expect that to be true, we expect it to be true with sort of manuscript peer review as well. And I think finding the opposite is kind of um, interesting in itself as a statement about publishing, but it's also interesting kind of theoretically in that maybe this cognitive bias story is not nearly as uh, crucial as, as we at some point thought. Are there any other similar studies that have looked at similar questions? Yeah, so one study um, I really like is um, by Jacob Foster and James Evans, uh, where they try to do something similar, except they um, quantified novelty of a contribution looking at the gene-gene interaction network. 
and sort of saw genes that are usually not studied together when they are that as being something more novel or kind of connecting genes that previously haven't been connected. And, um, you know, in their case, uh, they didn't use peer reviewed data. They just kind of looked at kind of citation impact, I believe, of, of published papers with either more or less connected genes. If I remember correctly, their kind of big uh, sort of takeaway was that, you know, pursuing a novel strategy, so combining genes that haven't been combined before, is um, gets you a few more citations if the paper's published, but not so many more. It's probably not worth the risk. However, uh, is those kinds of connections sort of across big space are we're much more associated with getting a major award, like a Nobel Prize. And so, you know, there was this kind of sense that from their work, Lisa, it is pretty important to do novel stuff if you really want to achieve at that kind of level. And it also, I think, points to kind of a, a family of strategies that maybe, you know, there's a lot, you know, depending on how much kind of risk, reward one wants, you know, different strategies can be pursued. Um, but I think the decision you make kind of around sort of early stage, sort of before you have the results and once you have the results, that, that does seem important to differentiate. And I think there is uh, at the moment a debate and in my sense, not a lot of clarity on whether cognitive bias is a story in the early stage. From my, from my work, it seems to be not a big story in the final stage. Maybe it's still a, a major factor in the early stage. So cognitive bias or whether it's just kind of a very rational kind of decision making going on that, you know, more uh, kind of novel ideas really do have a lower expected payoff. And so from that perspective, they should be rejected more often. You know, I think there's quite a quite unclear what, what's really going on. To conclude the discussion, I wanted to hear whether Misha had any final thoughts on the next steps in this research space. I think there's a big need for experimentation. Uh, lots of ideas have been voiced over the years. So it's, I think there's probably not so much a demand for new ideas as there is for experiments, for access to data, for organizations to be willing to actually implement things. That feels like you know, uh, the huge sort of um, obstacle to making the way we do science more efficient. Thanks for listening to this episode of Untold Health, and special thanks to Misha for his time. Feel free to share the episode, leave a rating on the podcast, and subscribe. Take care, and until next time.